Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are going to be giving you an update about one of the projects that we're working on at Blister Labs. This one is our technical apparel testing project. And so joining Luke Kappa and me is Melanie Petal, who is a faculty member in the partnership program between Western Colorado University here in Gunnison, Colorado, and the engineering department at CU Boulder. And as you are about to hear, Melanie, or Mel as I always call her, is a whole lot of fun And that comes across in this conversation too. So I think you're really going to enjoy hearing what we've all been up to and where things are headed. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Mel and Lou. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here in Blister headquarters in Elevation Hotel and Spa, right here in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, with. Lou Kappa, and for the first time on Gear 30, Mel Petal. Mel, welcome. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are happy to have you here and um, excited to dive into some updates with what we've been doing with our apparel testing at Blister Labs. So before we get there, though, I want you to tell the good people a bit about your background where you've come from, and how you got into this whole engineering world. The place we need to start is that I do not have good eye-hand coordination. And the reason we need to start there is because the only sport that I excelled at in high school was running. Long distance running, to be fair. I was not coordinated enough to do the short stuff. I was one of the first state contenders um, my sophomore year uh, at cross country for my high school. So pretty cool for, a, I don't know how old you are, sophomore year, 13, 14, I have no idea. From there, I just, uh, I got pretty good at running, enjoyed the camaraderie. I don't know that I ever actually enjoyed the running part, but it was good enough to, to hang out with my friends. And the reason we have to start there is because I ended up going to Mines on a full ride scholarship. My full ride scholarship was for an essay contest, <laughs> not for running. <laughs> so the School of Mines every year offers what's called the E-Day Scholarship. And the E-Day Scholarship, E-Day stands for Engineering Days. It's a big celebration for nerds um, in April. Wow. Uh, at Mines. And um, if you're into dynamite, I don't know if they still do it, but they um, blow up a lot of dynamite during their fireworks show. And it's really, really fun. Um, But anyways, uh, I got the E-Day scholarship um, my senior year. And part of the scholarship was, you know, academics and ACT scores and all that. But then a huge part of it was an essay. And the essay prompt was, what is the best and worst invention? Like in the world, in human history? Yeah. So that's the prompt to get this scholarship. Yeah. I could not use my copy paste of all the other scholarships I had (laughs) been applying for. Uh, And so I had to make up a completely new one. Uh, I waited till the last minute. Um, I decided that I would write a very off the wall essay, which fits probably what you know of me. 
And uh, so I said the best invention was a ballpoint pen Mm. and the worst invention was nail polish. Go on. Uh, So the best invention for a ballpoint pen um, was because it created equivalency between left-handed and right-handed people. Um, And so left-handed people didn't have to um, curl their hand like with a fountain pen because the ballpoint pen dried immediately, reduced (laughs) the biomechanic strain on left-handed people. (laughs) Um, I didn't say that in the essay, but... uh, And then uh, the worst invention, obviously, is nail polish because it creates a visual representation of a class of society. Um, So people that do not use their hands often can wear nail polish. And people that do use their hands can't normally wear nail polish that long just because of the chipping. And it creates a visual representation that they have to work with their hands. Huh. So anyways, I won a fluoride scholarship off that. Wow. Right? Um, <laughs> I found out later that that essay stuck out like a sore thumb and made all of the reviewers, it was just so different than any other application because it was like the atomic bomb or the camera or whatever. Um, and so just having pretty silly um, inventions and being able to justify it made for an interesting essay. And I got a full ride for four years at Mines. So, because of my lack of eye-hand coordination, um, I also decided to run for the team at Mines and um, ended up going to nationals eight times. I'm an All-American, academic All-American. But because I was running um, a lot, I also sprained my ankle a lot because that's just who I am um, as a person. And so uh, I actually ended up having to have surgery twice in college for sprained ankles. Um, so if anybody cares, I sprained my right calcaneofibular ligament twice, um, once, uh, freshman year of college and once my senior, super senior year, somewhere in there. Um, and so because of wanting to run and wanting to go to nationals and compete at nationals for all Americans, I ended up having, um, to take multiple medical red shirts and so i got a master's degree (laughs) (laughs) because i didn't want to stop running um so i kind of tripped and fell literally no into a master's degree (laughs) (laughs) wow (laughs) this conversation is i didn't know how it was gonna go or which direction but it's in some important sense it's going exactly as i would have sort of imagined so i'm very I'm happy about that. So yeah, we're we're off to a good start here. Good. I got my master's degree in beginning of May of whatever year it was. And then um but my last race for track was end of May. And so I got my master's degree. I went to my race. I finished my race. Probably I don't know if I got an all-American or not, but I competed at nationals and then I went to cool down and I thought, "Well, why am I cooling down? I don't have anything to do tomorrow." And then I had a huge meltdown <sighs> because I didn't know what to do with my life. Oh, no. Um, but uh, it was 2009 when I graduated, which finding a job in 2009 was pretty difficult, even with an engineering degree and especially with a master's because we were more expensive than the bachelor's. And so it just wasn't going well. But anyways, I took the first job that I got, which I don't even know if I should name the company. It was potentially the worst experience of my life. (laughs) But because it was so bad, I actually met my husband. So anyways, I wasn't happy at the engineering job. And, um, but 
I ended up quitting and going to massage school, which sounds like something out of left field as does the rest of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it made sense because when I was injured, I spent, I don't know, probably the most hours in the athletic training room uh, at Mines mm-hmm. and uh, ended up meeting a lot of people and just really enjoying that environment. I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome or not, <laughs> um, but I decided to go to massage school because I liked the human aspect. And um, now I teach biomechanics at Western or CU, the Western CU partnership program. So it all makes sense in hindsight. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. Came at it from a biomechanics side um, and have really been enjoying working at the CU program. And then, uh, yeah, this summer I was on the fabric team or apparel team, and I learned a lot. Just to recap a little bit, and before we go further on this Blister Labs apparel testing stuff, can you recap for us sort of a bit more precisely what you studied at the Colorado School of Mines? Yeah. Uh, So I have an undergraduate degree in engineering. At that point in time, they did not split mechanical, environmental civil and one other one into different degrees but i did the engineering undergraduate degree with an emphasis in mechanical i also got an area of special interest in biomechanical engineering and then uh, when i tripped and fell into my master's degree i ended up getting a mechanical engineering master's degree at the school of mines okay so mechanical engineering with a healthy dose of biomechanics thrown in there yes which is actually quite interesting. And I think, hopefully, as you and I have discussed, as we think about where this whole apparel testing might eventually go, I think bringing more of the biomechanics stuff into the mechanical engineering stuff that I think we're going to talk more about here in a minute, that stuff should only get more and more interesting. 100%. Cool. Okay. So let's talk now just a brief overview for people who haven't listened yet to our previous Gear 30 conversations about this Blister Labs apparel testing. Let's just talk a little bit about what we're hoping to accomplish broadly with this whole apparel project. We, as a group, are investigating what wear does to apparel and trying to standardize and correlate wear to real-life scenarios. If a jacket out of the box performs is the best jacket in the world. That's awesome. (laughs) But how many days do you get the best jacket in the world? In the world, right? Is it only the first day you have the maximum performance of that jacket and then it falls off a cliff and it is the worst jacket day two and beyond? It is not warranted to spend hundreds of dollars on this jacket. Whereas if you can get a jacket that's moderate performance, but holds moderate performance mm-hmm. across the lifespan of that use of your jacket, that is going to be money much better spent. I mean, kind of in a similar vein to what we're doing in other areas like mountain bike wheel testing, there's some serious limits in terms of what we're able to do when we're reviewing stuff, especially when it comes to durability. Yeah. Um, that alone is a whole kind of world in and of itself because durability when you're just testing it in the field is so such a case by case thing where 
I might ski the same run 30 times in a row and over the course of a week. And I only hit this one tree branch in exactly the right way one time and then it tears my jacket or I might never hit that tree branch. And so that's why it's always so difficult for us to say anything conclusive about durability unless we're able to be in a piece for like years. Um, So one, yeah, getting actual data on durability testing and then also seeing how that affects the like right now we're focusing on waterproof breathable shells basically and how that affects the water resistance rating and the breathability rating in addition to like what it's actually doing to the fabric itself the fabric's holding up um but yeah trying to kind of evaluate what's happening in the real world, but in a much more controlled environment. Yeah, well said. And and my little contribution to your two good kind of summaries or overviews of what we're doing. And again, people can go back and listen to our previous Gear 30 podcasts on apparel testing here. But I just think there is so much freaking murkiness around these numbers, right? So somebody who's like, I'm passionate about getting outside whether that's trail running or hiking or skiing or snowboarding, et cetera. And I just want to, you know, stay dry. Um, Well, I walk into the shop and I see all these pretty fancy looking jackets with these tags on them. And they say things like 20K waterproof and 20K breathable. And I think for many, many people, we're like, well... The higher number seems to be better than the lower number, so I guess I'll buy that. And what we're really hoping to do is just to create a lot more clarity around these topics and these labels and these standards. Um, So that is kind of the... I like all three of our answers to this, and I think that probably does a pretty nice job um, of helping people get oriented to what we're working on and why. Um, So, okay, I'm going to call that good job by us. Yeah, (laughs) good job, team. Um, Now, with that said, Mel, can you talk a bit about then what has been accomplished uh, with the Blister Labs testing so far and then where things have kind of shifted or are shifting in terms of like the next stages? So, last summer, the interns the blister lab intern team um these are upper level uh undergraduates that are doing research over the summer they were able to create two tests one that measures breathability and one that measures waterproofness and they're able to correlate to the two standards um in relation to those tests so they did a great job last year on that this year the interns worked on trying to create what we called agitation tests so the waterproofness and breathability from last year, we're calling them the measurable tests. And then we created three more tests this summer and we're calling them the agitation tests. So agitation means to bother or to do something to the fabric. And so uh, what we designed uh, this year was three agitation tests and we have the abrasion test, the compression test, and the UV test. So to review, abrasion is uh, rubbing something against something else. Um, There is a standard abrasion test out there uh, using the Weizenbeek machine. 
That is the industry standard for abrasion. What the Weizenbeek looks like is almost a piece of chain mail rubbing across fabric. And the interns this summer thought that maybe chain mail isn't an accurate real life standard. My jackets do go through a bit of chain mail because I fall down a lot, especially musky. Into fences? <laughs> Not into fences, but the ice can be like pretty sharp as you're sliding down the mountain. Um, maybe you don't end up I don't think crashing that much, but. I don't know that that's chain mail. Yeah. That's more you just need like frozen, well, ice actually, yeah. rough ice. Right. The Mel um, abrasion test. But that would be the only analogy that I can think of that would be good for a Weizenbeek is uh, sliding down a mountain while crashing in the snow, sharp snow. Uh, but. So much abrasion happens um, when you're moving your arms against your torso or your legs rubbing against each other. Um, and so what this test that designed, the interns designed, is using the same material to rub against itself. So uh, they have a little machine with a little steel head and it connects to a piece of fabric and there's a fabric on both sides and it just rubs back and forth. Probably has a three inch stroke maybe. Uh, and it just does that over and over and over again to mimic an armpit rubbing against the torso or something like that. Uh, so that is the abrasion test that the interns designed. Uh, the other test is the compression test. So jackets undergo compression, A, being packed into bags, and then B, in, uh, it's called your popliteal crease. Um, the layman's term is your knee pit. Uh, so when you walk, your pants will bend the same way in your knee pit, similar to your hips up by your um, hip flexors. Uh, so those wrinkles are repeated. If you see old pairs of jeans, they're often worn off in those exact areas. So this compression test is a about one inch diameter tube and it holds the sample of fabric on both sides. And then it just compresses it and then stretches it out and compresses it and stretches it out. That gives you the same wrinkle over and over and over again. And it also gives you the compression with that wrinkle. Um, so that is a compression test. The UV test, like it sounds, uh, is just very, very well designed box. It's a box with lights on the inside and top. And then you just close the, the access point, which it sounds pretty simple as I describe it, but it actually ended up being a little bit more tricky. As it turns out, UV lights have different ratings and they um, emit different parts of the light spectrum. And so uh, there's very specific UV lights out there for different purposes. So the company that we were looking at um, had three different UV bulbs that we could choose from. The first option has a combination of UVA and UVB. Um, these bulbs are used for accelerating the curing process for lacquers on musical instruments or pool cues or maybe skis. There is another option that has a higher concentration of UVB. That's the second option. And these are made to run for short periods of time with intense UV output and high heat. And then there's a third option that emits mostly UVC, which is primarily used as a disinfectant in hospitals and clean rooms. Um, so we went with the, um, 
burst option, which has the UVA and the UVB, which seems to mostly mimic natural sunlight. Obviously, it's not perfect, but it doesn't have the UVB that the second option had or the UVC only that the third option had, which would both, um, they weren't as real world as the first option. So you may want to know why UV lights exist and what industries use UV lights. Do you guys have an idea of what where UV lights could be used? The only case I'm familiar with is for tying flies. Uh, they use a, a UV sensitive adhesive, basically. Oh, interesting. Do you flies? Uh, tying flies. Oh, tying fly fishing. flies. Um, so it hardens once you expose it to UV, but that's like, I think the only thing I'm yeah, familiar with. Yeah, that sounds like it might fit with that first option where it cures the... Mm-hmm. the yeah, it sounds about right. So indoor growing is a very common option, but the other option is tanning show pigs. As in making pigs skin darker? <laughs> right. Tanning yeah. show pigs. Yeah. Um, so that's, yes, that is what those words mean. Uh, so what happens is apparently, and I had to look this up, I'm not a show pig tanner <laughs> enthusiast or, or a tanner. show pig shower <laughs> show pig shower i guess um so when you are showing your pigs at an event it the pig will show better if you have more contrast between their spots and oh. their base color and i'm sure shower of pigs may have a lot more words to say on this but my understanding is they put on sunscreen on their base color and then they um, put like either tanning oil or potentially no oil on their um, their dark spots. And then they have them sit in the tanning booth, I guess. And uh, it makes their dark spots darker and they show better because of the contrast between the two. Wow. So um, for pig shows, we like dark spots? That's, That's considered- my understanding of my Google search. Like contrast, I guess. Huh. It just makes the pig more lively or something i'm not <laughs> lively i don't really know how stands out more pigs light based dark spots i think energy drinks would make the pigs more lively <laughs> okay wow this conversation continues to not disappoint uh at least on the weirdness spectrum so okay tanning show pigs well actually what i was thinking is i was like can i get my hands on one of those pig tanning beds because i i probably could use i could probably use a little help um i'm pretty sure downtown crested butte just has a tanning booth if you want to do that well i kind of feel like i'd rather hang out with the show pigs that's fair yeah okay luke where should we go from here what are you wondering about sitting over there yeah well i think mostly it's the yeah the impact that these three agitation tests had on the measurable tests that were done before and after uh, because, yeah, it does aim to emulate some of the most common wear kind of processes that jackets like this will go through when someone's actually using them. And UV to me is really interesting because that's one that I almost never think about despite living in a very, very sunny place. Um, And I cannot uh, imagine that a test has been a similar test has been done, especially on waterproof breathable fabrics. But yeah, I mean, if you if you live in 
a place like Crested Butte, it is not uncommon to be out in the sun in your waterproof shells, like whether that's in the summer when it manages to thunderstorm and be sunny at the same time or during uh, hundreds of days in the winter. Uh, So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, any... Any notable takeaways uh, following these agitation tests or um, any surprises that you noticed um, during this initial round? Right. Uh, So one of the first tests we did was just the UV test. We had a sample of fabric that had not been agitated last summer. And we threw that in the UV and then did a waterproof test on it. Uh, So it was one sample one piece of jacket that we don't know the history of. Uh, so there's a lot of variables that we can't control in this one sample. But what was interesting is that the UV only, after 24 hours, degraded the waterproofness by almost 9%. So we think it's between somewhere between 8 and 9% on this one sample. So that was an interesting tidbit that encouraged us to keep looking into the further agitation test. So over the summer, we were able to get through two different jackets. Uh, one was blue and one was white. So I'm going to call it the blue jacket and the white jacket. And we ran the samples through 24 hours of UV, four hours of compression, and four hours of agitation, which works out to be about 24,000 cycles on each machine. The white jacket had a 98.4% degradation in its waterproofness. And uh, the breathability actually increased almost four percent and then the blue jacket had a 67 percent degradation in its waterproofness and its breathability decreased almost 11 percent it's interesting that the breathability diverged in its two uh results and my first suspicion is that these are two very different jackets one has a fleece liner the white one has a fleece liner and the blue one doesn't and the outside even is completely different so uh they weren't they were both um waterproof and breathable jackets but there was some other differences that weren't standard between the two what do you think about that yeah it is it is interesting they are two they're both technically three layer shells so face fabric uh membrane some sort of backing fabric but yeah the white one is not the most common construction with that fleece backing and just looking at the samples, you could almost see where the fleece backer had been worn down. You could kind of see through the um, the fleece fibers. And so it's not totally surprising to me that breathability increased a little bit, like didn't, didn't change a whole lot. The, the 98% reduction in water resistance is pretty wild. I think it does does make intuitive sense to me, given that, especially because that piece has kind of lower density face fabrics and backer fabrics that, especially in terms of abrasion, are, in my experience, don't hold up as well as kind of much more densely woven or knit smaller fiber fabrics. Uh, but yeah, the fact that it dropped that much is pretty wild. Uh, I don't think in use I've had... Well, I mean, it's. It, I guess it makes sense that I wouldn't have that experience because these are replicating a lot of abrasions and uh, compression and UV exposure in 
a much shorter time period than you'd be able to expose it to when actually using it. Um, but yeah, pretty wild to me how much, especially the water resistance dropped off. The other part of that is it's concentrated in one area. Mm-hmm. So when you're wearing a jacket, your shoulders are getting exposed to the UV. Maybe your arms are getting exposed to the abrasion. And so this specific sample is six inches by six inches and it's getting all three, mm-hmm. one right after the other on it. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, fair to say that's where as we test more pieces, we're going to have to make some decisions about how many times are we abrading, like you mentioned, 24,000. And we're going to keep playing with this, right? And we might find that to make up some numbers, 6,000 seems like a more real world relevant number. But I think as we've looked around at some of the standards out there, they're either not very transparent or it seems almost as arbitrary as our 24,000, right? Right. And so I think that's another one of the things we're hoping to do is create a lot more transparency uh, behind these standards. Luke, you were just mentioning before we started talking that a lot of the companies don't tell you when we're getting to certain numbers of, oh, this one's 10K waterproof for 20K, they're not telling you what test they used to even get there, which then makes it actually pretty meaningless. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of companies are buying fabrics from a, a textile company. So they're just getting their the textile company is coming to them with a catalog of fabrics and saying, here's what we can offer you with these different face fabric and backer combinations. And this one's rated at 20K, 20K. And they might never even know what test was run. Uh, the vast majority will not list like an ASTM um, standard stating what ratings they're giving you. And yeah, there's certain companies that are better than others and certain companies provide more information. But especially with like global supply chains, I would be surprised if a significant number of apparel brands are running their own tests. I think a lot of people are just relying on what the textile manufacturer is telling them. And I'm sure... like I know Gore has an extremely uh, comprehensive testing facility. Uh, I've, I've seen it and they do a lot of it. And they they do it all themselves too, but I don't imagine that is uh, the most common case when people are looking into these fabrics. Right. So the apparel companies might even use the fabric on our tests before they build a jacket to make sure that they're getting what they pay for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could that could be a case in the future. And I also think just uh, well, in the future we're going to be combining this with in-field testing like we have uh been testing several garments that labs has their own samples of and then we're gonna see what happens when uh or yeah how how a fabric tests after it's been used not in a lab setting just used for months or years at a time because that's a whole nother factor is like you especially if you don't wash it often you produce a lot of oils Mm and those can affect the membrane from the inside. And yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to finally be able to 
have some data to um, match up to some subjective uh, takeaways I've had over the years. Totally. And even washing your jacket can affect the waterproofness and breathability. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't wash my jacket unless I really have to. Yeah, I'd be curious. I, I would like to do a maybe further down the line, washed versus non-washed after being used. Because I suspect some jackets will perform better after you wash them. Oh, interesting. Um, but it, it also depends on the membrane. And um, yeah, so that, there's a lot of, lot of opportunity. I think one other interesting takeaway I had was that despite the, in particular, the water resistance rating dropping so significantly, it's the same, like looking at the samples, it's not like there's a hole in them. They honestly right. look pretty good for what they've been through. But what I suspect is that these these membranes that are sandwiched between the two fabrics, if you ever are able to see one of those in person, it's 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 almost like saran wrap. They're super thin and fragile, and that's why they are laminated between other fabrics. And I think the performance drop off following these tests is very good evidence of that. That even when they are sandwiched between two other fabrics, because that's the that membrane is the main thing that's giving you that water resistance and Apparently, it's broken down a lot, but you would never be able no, to tell that yeah. it's been that seriously compromised. Totally. So, one thing, we have the, the number results. We had the percent differences after the agitation. But one other data point that I don't really know how to bring into this discussion, but the fabrics feel different before and after. Uh, the fabric sitting in front of me, I would say the first qualitative data point I could say is they just feel a little bit more brittle than the original fabric. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm curious to see if we can narrow it down in terms of if it was the sum total of all the um agitation tests or if one in particular. My hunch would be the UV test. Um, but I can't say cuz often you'll get if fabrics are subjected to a bunch of wrinkling or abrasion, usually it would get softer or at least be a bit more supple. Um, but yeah, there's a distinct tactile difference between the uh, agitated and non-agitated samples. And yeah, I mean, mostly I'm just excited because we haven't had access to this sort of stuff in the past. And like when I was in school, I would have killed to uh, be able to actually play around with this stuff and see, test some theories that have been in the back of my head for a while. Next steps, further questions. Um, We've already talked a bit about we want to continue to fine tune and tweak, like we said, the example of how many uh, abrasions, right? 24,000, maybe we test some things at a lower degree, especially when we start doing that with jackets, brand new jackets that our team will be out skiing in uh, and testing and, and start to develop some senses of like, this is showing a pretty interesting sort of relation to like the labs testing versus the infield stuff. So that's one of the things we're going to continue to play with. But what else? What are you thinking about or wondering about or looking at, Mel? Yeah, um, I do have a, a few things here. I'd like to hear what you guys, what questions or thoughts come up to you immediately hearing these results. And then I can wrap it up. Yeah, I think uh, in particular, yeah, fine tuning the these agitation tests and yeah, like 
in the case of the the white jacket, it lost almost all of its water resistance. And so I, now I'm curious about what at what point did it start to really drop off or or how does it deal with a little bit of abrasion or a little bit of UV exposure and just getting more data in terms of where that performance really starts to drop mm-hmm. off if yeah. it's an exponential thing or if it's you hit a, a distinct number and it, all of a sudden it drops off. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, the, that's, that's really interesting, actually. Totally. Yeah, if you could plot over yep. time, if it's exponential or linear or a cliff. And if we start noticing that most kind of higher end jackets say, oh, turns out once you hit 5,000 agitations or 10,000, they're all fairly similar and then the cliff hits or if, if that's all over the map. And then how does that compare to some more price point options? Right. Right. Exactly. That's going to start getting really interesting. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's such a wide variety of membranes, face fabrics, backer fabrics, constructions, like two layer versus 2.5 versus three. So uh, that like even just comparing different fabrics that are on the market to each other um, is what I'm particularly interested in too, because they all look pretty similar, but especially these days, there's a a decent variety in terms of the membranes themselves and uh, now a lot of companies are switching to recycled face fabrics. Is there a drop off in like durability there? Or there's been a big push into using knit back backing fabrics, which uh, feel quite different. They're a lot, they make for a much more comfortable quote hard shell, but I would suspect they don't handle repeated abrasion quite as well. So testing that sort of stuff and yeah, that that aspect is also what I'm really interested in because we've kind of accumulated all of this qualitative experience with a lot of different fabrics over the years. But uh, and I have like my impressions and opinions about them. But even yeah, just comparing different fabrics head to head is really exciting for me too. So you guys were both talking about the what results we could be looking for. Uh, being an engineer, I'm looking at the tests and seeing how to improve the tests. Uh-huh. Uh So. The abrasion test, uh, I mentioned it's just a steel head on top of, um, based on the weight of the steel head and the gravity, it just rubs based on that. And so, is that pressure the right pressure that armpits experience? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know. Yes. And so, trying to find out what fabric experiences in an armpit versus what our abrasion test is, and if we need to adjust the the weight at which it's... Uh, abrading against itself so that's one the other one that i didn't realize until i was testing the second fabric is in the compression test we have a one inch tube and a very standard volume and the two jackets are significantly different weights that we tested and so they're not experiencing the same amount of compression because the jacket with the higher volume is going to be experiencing more compression because it it fills up that space so much more than the previous jacket. Mm-hmm. So being able to standardize the compression number, I don't know how to fix that one off the top of my head, but that is definitely something that we need to look at. And then the last one is standardizing the UV box to what real world life is. Mm -hmm. So you both talked about how many uh, repetitions in the compression test or the um, abrasion test. But I think we also need to look at what our UV box emits and how that correlates to you know, Crested Butte Mountain Resort Sun versus an East Coast Resort. 
and if the UV index has anything to do with it, and if you can look at a UV index and know that that jacket's going to be experiencing a lot that day or something like that. So being able to standardize our UV tests to real-world applications and real-world time of use. I love ending on that note because one of the things that we have said repeatedly, and we will never stop saying it, is that it is for us about the real world applicability of this stuff. And I want that to become synonymous with Blister Labs, right? Okay, these folks are really getting into the weeds and doing some sophisticated engineering stuff, whether that's about mountain bike wheel sets, whether that's about technical fabrics, you know, whether it's about ski flex stuff and how a ski performs, but that's great. But we want to bring it back to how this affects the buying decisions and how that affects the experience and the enjoyment and the safety of our broad audience of people who love going outdoors, recreating outside, getting after it outside. And so I love that it just, that's what we're going to do. We've seen some of these standards. We've talked a bit about this. Some of the standards that were created had nothing to do. They, they had nothing to do with the enjoyment, the safety of people going outside to recreate. Not, not at all. And we've talked about some examples of that in past Blister Labs Gear 30 episodes. That's not what we're about. And so to combine high-level engineering stuff with those concerns about how does this get to the end user? I like that. So I think we're going to leave it there. Mel, thank you. This was this was fun. Um, If you're wondering what hanging out with Mel is like, it's like this podcast. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so that's what that's like. And uh, Mel, I look forward to doing this again with you sometime. All right, sounds good. All right, Luke, thank you as always. And uh, now we will move into a very sad crashes and close calls segment involving my neighbor. Spoiler alert, Mel, he just incurred a $9,000 bill that if he had Blister Plus would have cost him zero. Oh, no. So, yeah. So that's up next, but I'm going to let you all go for now. And Jack, we're thinking of you, but I really wish you'd picked up Blister Plus first. All right, that in a minute. Luke, Mel, thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. All right, folks. Well, as we've just teased, today's Crashes and Close Calls story time, not a happy one, not a funny one. There's no jokes here. It's just sad and a chunk of it, the really expensive part, was entirely avoidable. So, these are the details. My good friend, my neighbor, he lives across the street from me. I'm, I'm not going to name names here, but he's a great guy. He's a good mountain biker. Well, he was mountain biking and was kind of just out on a fun ride. I'll tell you the name of the trail. It was the bottom of Lupin. Which, for those of you who've ridden in Crested Butte and who have been on Lupin, this is like, we're talking blue square or green circle territory. This was the easiest part of the entire ride, basically. Well, 
as I myself have done, my friend and neighbor managed to wash out his front wheel, which then sent his head slamming into the ground. And while his helmet was 100% fine, no damage to it whatsoever, he did knock out three teeth. And those three teeth cost $3,000 per tooth to repair. So, yep, for those of you who aren't so good at math, that's $9,000 that will be coming out of pocket for my friend and neighbor. So, yeah, terrible news. And I won't even tell you about his face, which got pretty good and beat up. But frankly, in the scheme of things, that actually could have gone worse. But back to the teeth and the $9,000 tab. If my friend had signed up already for Blister Plus, his bill for these teeth repairs and replacements would have been zero dollars. So zero instead of 9,000. Now, I'm going to say this again, this whole notion that so many injuries happen when we least expect it. And frankly, when we're not doing the super NAR stuff where we are probably focused 100% on what's happening. That's exactly what happened to me the last time I blew up badly on a mountain bike. The technical part of the ride was done. I was basically just riding out to the road. Front wheel got loose and I slammed down, broke four ribs, blew up my right shoulder. And that earned me a, I think it was twelve to 13,000 bill from the emergency room of which I had to pay about $8,000 out of pocket. In my case, if Blister Plus had existed at the time, my bill would have been $0. So this is why we care so much about this. As I keep saying, like our friends, our neighbors, the people in our communities are getting messed up and incurring not just bodily damage, but also incurring these insanely expensive medical bills. And with Blister Plus, which is less than $400 for the entire year, that comes with $25,000 worth of injury insurance with zero deductible. And that's per incident. So if you lose it while mountain biking, hit your head, are worried you have a concussion, go get checked out. Go see if you're okay. Your Blister Plus coverage is going to cover that emergency room visit. And then if a few months later, you're out there skiing or snowboarding and you tweak your knee hard or blow your knee, that is a new incident and there will be another $25,000 worth of injury insurance to go toward getting checked out or getting an ambulance ride or getting a backcountry evacuation. And this Blister Plus coverage works if you have no insurance, which is a really dangerous situation, and folks, if you're listening to this and you have no insurance, please, please, please seriously stop what you're doing and sign up for this now. But for so many others of us, myself included, it really is about your deductible. You might have insurance, but do you know what your deductible is? And do you know if you get wrecked? how much you are going to have to pay out of pocket to get the medical treatment you need. In my case, my tab 
was $8,000 for a single day emergency room visit where they just ran tests. I didn't get a cast. I didn't get any surgery. And that bill was 13 grand. My quote unquote good insurance that I pay 500 bucks a month for still left me paying $8,000 out of pocket. And yeah, as we've said, my neighbor, well, he's looking at a $9,000 tab that he's going to have to pay out of his own pocket. Anyway, this is why we care so much about this, folks. We're not going to stop talking about it. We want to get as many people covered in our community. And so we will include a link in the show notes of this episode where you can get all the information. You can see exactly which activities and sports are covered under this thing. And then again, the smart move here is to sign up now before you get hurt, right? It doesn't work after you get hurt. Then you can't go sign up. Sign up now, get yourself covered, and I will calm down and sleep better at night knowing that more and more and more of you won't be stuck with stupidly expensive medical bills. Okay, enough on that. But yeah, now go sign up. Okay. And that then brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Luke and Mel so much for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. This coming Monday over on our Blister podcast, uh, it's time once again to review the news. And so you will be able to catch Cody Townsend and me doing what we do over on our Blister podcast on Monday. And then we've got a whole slew of great conversations coming next week as well on our other podcasts. So tune in, get yourself some Blister Plus coverage, and then check out reviewing the news this Monday on our Blister podcast. All right, everybody, have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. <laughs>